All right. It's exciting to be here with you. Many of you know um, that I have been appointed as an adjunct professor to uh, Puritan Reform Seminary and that I will be teaching there this spring. Uh, the first course that I've been asked to create and to teach is called Counseling from Wisdom Literature and the Psalms. Sounds ominous. Um, I've taught counseling from the Psalter on the uh, graduate level many times before, but I've never really taught a course strictly on Old Testament wisdom literature, which is what characterizes the books of Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. Yes, I can see some of you smiling. Ecclesiastes. It was providential that I chose the book of Ecclesiastes um, long before I knew my teaching post. And we've spent the better part of a year now making our way through that wonderful book, the book of Ecclesiastes. And I've spent several months during that time also researching biblical wisdom literature. Sounds dry, but it isn't. It's actually very exciting. It was only a matter of time in my study before I would arrive at the connection between wisdom literature and Christ. And since I have in time for Christmas, it only makes sense that I would that I would speak on it. So this Christmas Sunday, I want to speak on this very important topic of Christ and wisdom, or the wisdom of God and Christ. Now you might be thinking, I don't know of any traditional Christmas passages out of Job or Proverbs or Ecclesiastes. And what does biblical wisdom literature and Christmas have in common? Ah, I'm glad you asked. Much. But to answer your question more fully, I want to catch you up a little bit on this very interesting field of study called biblical wisdom literature. Let me introduce you first to wisdom literature that we find in all cultures, ancient and modern. The purpose of this type of literature is to make a person skilled at living life. Very, very simple. Skilled at living life. And it is inseparably bound to a particular body of knowledge. I thought wisdom and knowledge were the same. Not exactly. Wisdom is applied knowledge. If knowledge is the hammer, then wisdom is the act of swinging it. Wisdom is knowledge in motion. Now, let me illustrate the relationship between wisdom and knowledge this way. Great chefs skillfully create gourmet meals because they have a knowledge of which uh, ingredients to mix or which ingredients mix well together. A horse trainer can produce a well-broke horse because he has the knowledge of the nature of horses and the nature of horsemanship and principles of horsemanship. You get the idea. So wisdom literature is about teaching a person how to be skilled at living life. As we said, it has to do with things like being industrious, the nature of a good reputation, parenting well, having a, a happy marriage, how to relate to others, how not to die before you're old. And the knowledge that it uses to do this is what you might call human observations from life experience and the world, like trial and error pragmatics, tradition, even the laws of the universe. 
laws of the universe. Well, yeah, the reason you don't open or close the top of a convertible while, tra while traveling uh, or while the car is moving is a matter of physics. And it's typically that wisdom liter typical that wisdom literature takes the best of observations from life experience and packages it in the form of proverbs. Proverbs are easy to remember. For example, never trouble trouble till trouble troubles you. That's a clever way to, to keep you from making things more difficult for yourself than they need to be. Or people, don't, people who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. And that, of course, warns us against being hypocritical. This is the way wisdom literature has always been. An ancient Babylonian proverb from the library of Ashurbanipal on the hazards of materialism goes like this. He who possesses many things is constantly on guard. Another one, much simpler but also very profound, is the Sumerian proverb. The good thing is to find it. The bad thing is to lose it. So here it is, wisdom literature of the world. It's grounded in human observations from life experiences and creation, <clears throat> packaged in pithy proverbs designed to teach a person how to live skillfully. Now, with that covered, I can introduce you to biblical wisdom. There's a difference. Oh, yes, there's a huge difference. There are two aspects of biblical wisdom that <clears throat> sets it apart and makes it superior to the wisdom literature of the world. <clears throat> Excuse me. One is that it is grounded not in human observation from experience, but rather in divine truth, that is, Scripture. You see, it transcends human observations and experiences and, uh, of creation. It cannot be developed simply by keen observation and cogent reflection on the created order. No, the sage of Proverbs claims a divine origin of revelation for his wisdom. Listen to Proverbs 2, verse 6. The Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. So this wisdom is absolute truth that is divinely inspired and canonical. Even Solomon believed this to be true of his own wisdom sayings. He equates his words with God's words in Proverbs 2. He says, My son, if you will receive my words and my treasure and treasure my commandments with you, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Did you catch the switch, the abrupt change from the commandments of Solomon to the knowledge that comes from the Lord? That abrupt change shows that the two are actually the same. Solomon's words are the words of God. Arger says the same thing about his writing in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 5 and 6. He says, every word of God is pure. Do not add to his words or he'll rebuke you and you will be proved a liar. Now this comes immediately after Arger writes his own um, Proverbs. So he's obviously equating God's word with his words. Biblical wisdom comes from God. 
When Peter wrote in his second epistle, no prophecy of scripture becomes a matter of someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. He certainly meant to include Job and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. More proof that biblical wisdom is founded on special revelation from God is the fact that scriptural truth often contradicts human wisdom and what human wisdom think is right, as the book of Judges proves to us, right? Every Israelite who rejected what God said did what was right in his own eyes. Do you remember? So biblical wisdom is grounded in divine truth. That's one aspect. The other aspect is that biblical wisdom is also grounded in covenant faith in the God of the Bible. In covenant faith in the God of the Bible. If Proverbs, in Proverbs 1, King Solomon is speaking and considers humanity and the world around him from the vantage point of a covenant relationship with God. He says in verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now, this statement sets the tone for the entire book of Proverbs. Solomon uses the personal covenant name for God here in this verse, Yahweh. And his reference to the fear of Yahweh is code language for a a covenantal love relationship with God. Biblical wisdom, then, gives godly instruction for the benefit of members of God's covenant for only they are capable of knowing and obeying it. So worldly wisdom and godly wisdom, they might look uh, at God's creation and draw observations from their experience with it, but worldly wisdom interprets what it observes through experience from a fallen and faulty vantage point, while biblical wisdom interprets all of it from a righteous vantage point with reference to life in covenant relationship with God. And that makes all the difference in the world. You see, any attempt to interpret life from a human, worldly, fallen vantage point, that is, without the lens of Scripture, will lead to a wrong interpretation of reality every time. For example, the sage in Proverbs puts on his biblical lens, and he can look at the ant as a paradigm for discipline and prudence. But take the lens off, and we see just how hazardous a creature the ant is. Through the biblical lens of Scripture, the sage can also look at the animal world and see spiritual illustrations. Proverbs is filled with them. Take the lens off, And the animal kingdom teaches only survival of the fittest, which is wickedness, not righteousness. It's important, beloved, that you understand the difference between biblical wisdom literature and its counterfeits, because sadly, many in the church don't. And they wind up listening to the wrong people, those who claim an expertise in human nature, but wear different lenses than scripture in order to interpret the world around them, and their counsel is very dangerous. Now, with that brief explanation of biblical wisdom in place, we come back to our nagging question, which I haven't answered yet. 
What does all this have to do with Christmas? Simply this. The Christ of Christmas is the epitome of biblical wisdom. If biblical wisdom is superior to worldly wisdom, and Jesus is the fullest expression of Old Testament biblical wisdom, then the wisdom that is Jesus is superior to any worldview, any philosophy, or belief system found under the sun. And that is essentially what the Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 2. So take your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 2. We're looking at specifically verse 3. Let me read that for you. Verse 3. In him, that is Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2 verse 3. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What does Paul mean by this verse? The phrase wisdom and knowledge tell us that Paul is talking about our ability as Christians to live the spiritual life skillfully on the basis of God's special body of revelation. Now, How do we know this? Well, the context of chapter 2 tells us In the first place, each of these false teachers who infiltrated Colossae, the church at Colossae, uh, were claiming to offer skill, the skill of living the Christian life with their own particular body of information, which, by the way, Paul called false doctrine. Colossians was written in order to combat false doctrine that had infiltrated the church. So we don't know the details of their teaching, but we can get a good idea or a general idea of how Paul, in, in the way Paul answered them. We know, for example, that one particular doctrine promoted the practice of asceticism, which Paul criticizes in chapter 2, verse 23, as harsh treatment of the body. His warning in chapter 2, verse 8, of elemental spiritual forces, well, that suggests that another doctrine was promoting the practice of angel worship. And his mention of circumcision, Sabbath observances, religious festivals, and new moon celebrations, and food regulations in chapter 2 suggest a suffocating legalism advocated by his arch enemies, the Judaizers. What we find confronting the Colossians then is this multifaceted heresy that was a blend of Jewish and Hellenistic teaching. And in a word, it was syncretism, and it threatened the Christian walk. Syncretism was a a feature of the ancient world, and it would have been rather appealing to the immature Christians here in Colossae. But whatever the details of their heresies, there's no denying that each of these doctrines, these heresies, whatever they were, were meant to be practiced, to be lived out for the for the promise of a closer and more skillful walk with God. Paul, therefore, directs their attention to the true source of godliness, and that is biblical wisdom. In the second place, we should understand the phrase wisdom and knowledge as biblical wisdom that is founded on God's special body of revelation, the scripture, for skillful living because Paul connects it to the life of Christ. He connects it to the life of Christ, who is, by the way, our divine role model of wisdom. 
Paul says that this wisdom and knowledge is in him. That's how he begins the verse, in him. And it's abundantly clear that Jesus understood in the New Testament, or is is understood by the New Testament, rather, to be the fullest expression of the wisdom of God that God gave to Solomon. In fact, superior to Solomon. Jesus said so himself in Matthew 12, verse 42. He said, something greater than Solomon is here, referring to himself. Solomon may have been the wisest person in the world, but Jesus is the wisdom of God to us. And Paul puts it that way in 1 Corinthians 1.30. Let's not forget also the section of prophecy in Isaiah 11, in verse 2, which says of Messiah, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This prophecy came true. According to the testimony that we read in Matthew 13, verse 54, people who heard and saw Jesus were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom? Beloved, bound up in the incarnation of Christ was not only the fullness of deity, but the fullness of God's wisdom. There is a reason why John calls Jesus in his gospel, right in the first chapter, verse 1, the word that became flesh. Jesus was the absolute and wise word of God upon which godly wisdom is founded. The wisdom and knowledge that Paul speaks of in in Colossians 2.3 then is summed up in Jesus. Now, let's let's start to get practical with this information. On this Lord's Day, I want us to answer another question. What exactly did God give us in in the Christ child? According to the angel that appeared to Mary, God gave the Davidic king whose kingdom will have no end. According to the one that appeared to Joseph, the savior of his people. According to the one that appeared to the shepherds on the eve of Jesus' birth, the very God himself. According to Simeon, whom God promised would see the Christ child before he died, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of God's people. According to Mary, the culmination of salvation history. Those are, of course, accurate and exactly what humanity needs when you think about it. We need a divine ruler who will rule with absolute righteousness and justice. No one rules or operates with absolute justice and righteousness. We need a savior who can reconcile us to God. We need the light of God's truth to see reality for what it is. So many people today do not see reality for what it is. We need the confirmation of the culmination of God's saving work and the guarantee that it comes in Christ. But there is something more that we have in Christ, the Christ child, that humanity desperately needs, especially Americans at this time in the history of our country. And it's this, it's godly wisdom founded on absolute truth for skillful living. That's what we need. That's what everybody needs. That's also what God gave us in the Christ child. 
Now, I want to show you just how great this gift of godly wisdom is by considering its byproducts. Paul says in our verse, Colossians 2.3, that all the treasures of biblical or godly wisdom are in Christ. All the treasures. The Greek word for our English, that our English Bibles translate treasures here can refer to a place where treasure is stored, like a treasure chest. But in our context, it actually refers to the treasures themselves. And the grammar here indicates that the treasures are the byproducts of wisdom and knowledge. What a firm uh, with a, with what a firm command of Scripture, in other words, and the skill to apply it in life will produce these treasures. And we get a good idea of these byproducts just from the way the Hebrew word for wisdom is used in the preamble of the book of Proverbs. Just in the few verses of Proverbs chapter 1, it says this about wisdom. It encompasses insight, prudence, cunning, discretion, guidance, counsel, and competence and resourcefulness. In chapter 8, verses 12 to 14, wisdom is personified as lady wisdom. And this is what she says about herself. I, wisdom, share a home with shrewdness and have knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. I hate arrogant pride evil conduct, and perverse speech. I possess good advice and sound wisdom. I have understanding and strength. It is by me that kings reign and rulers enact just law. By me, princes lead and do nobles and all all righteous judges. That's Lady Wisdom. Now, Just that list alone is enough to make anyone jealous for godly wisdom. Who wouldn't want those virtues? Who wouldn't want to demonstrate them and desire desire them all the more in our day where they're so absent in a fallen world? A survey of godly wisdom in the New Testament supports these virtues listed in Proverbs. It produces discernment, the New Testament says. Discernment. The writer of Hebrews tells us that it is by the practice of applying Scripture to life that a Christian can train his senses to distinguish the difference between good and evil, that is, moral good and, and, and moral evil, which is becoming more difficult day by day. New Testament also says that godly wisdom produces godliness. According to 1 Timothy 4, it is by turning a deaf ear to, a deceitful, to the deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons, Paul says, and worthless stories of old women, which are the sum of worldly wisdom, and to fix ourselves on what Paul calls good doctrine, by which we train ourselves for godly living. New Testament says that godly wisdom produces skillful living, Paul commands in Ephesians 5 to walk wisely by knowing what the will of God is and doing it. And also, New Testament gives us, says that biblical wisdom gives us the mind of Christ. Now, this particular virtue of wisdom that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 2.16, the mind of Christ, is unique to the new covenant. The mind of Christ is an expression that applies to living the whole Christian life 
by applying Christ's teaching, that is, apostolic truth, which is his mind on the printed page. This is the kind of wisdom that Christ gave to the apostles in those times when they needed to make a defense before their adversaries, who, as Luke 12 explains, were unable to resist and contradict their wisdom. This is the wisdom that Stephen possessed. Luke tells us in Acts 9, or 6 rather, verses 9 to 11, that those who opposed Stephen and argued with him were unable to stand up against his wisdom. And it is this same wisdom by which those who were filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts 6 operated in their roles as the first deacons in church history. But let me be quick to add, Christ, our wisdom, was demonstrated perfectly for us. All of these virtues, this godly wisdom, was demonstrated perfectly for us and how it, it, and, and how it is to be lived out by Christ himself. He showed husbands how to love their brides by dying for his. Wives, the meaning of submission, by submitting to the Father's will himself, even to death. And to children, how to be obedient children to please the Father. He showed Christians how to suffer that we might follow in his steps and how to learn from it, how to learn obedience from it. He showed us all how to pray, how to love our enemy, the importance of loving and putting God first in all things, how to forgive, how to expose error, how to rebuke somebody with his best interest in mind, how to live in this fallen world in perfect obedience to God, how to receive one's lot in life from God thankfully. Even the very incarnation itself, Paul tells us in Philippians 2, is a great display and model of self-denial and what it means to put the interest of others before your own. More than this, Jesus accompanies his perfect display of skillful living with sound and clear teaching on the subject as well. And that's no more and no less than the entire Bible. That's Jesus' teaching. You'll notice that Paul's all-inclusive language in verse 3, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Not some, not a few, but all. We would be here a very long time if we had to recount the full counsel that Jesus left for us in the pages of his word on biblical wisdom. The put-off, put-on principle from Ephesians 4, the the radical amputation principle from Matthew 5, the holding principle from Romans 14, principles of child-rearing, marriage, counsel on discernment, local church ministry, maintaining one's spiritual health in the race of faith, how to maintain one's uh, strength in the good fight of faith, how to put on the full spiritual mail and armor of God, how to pray to love God and neighbor, <clears throat> how to reconcile, how to walk in the spirit and not carry out the lust of the flesh, and to display the fruit of the spirit, to practice spiritual gifts, that our thoughts and actions and motives are actually the result of what's in our heart and not the result of anything external to us. That means that nothing makes you do what you don't want to do in your heart, so says Jesus in Matthew 15, verse 11. 
How to overcome sinful worry, sinful anger, hypocrisy. You know, I find it interesting. In Ephesians chapter 4, in verses 7 to 20, the the Apostle Paul's reason why we Christians should not act like unbelievers, who, he says, walks in the futility of their minds, are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and having become callous, having given, having given themselves to the indecent behavior for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. The reason we're not to behave that way, verse 20, is because you did not learn Christ this way. What an odd expression. How do you learn Christ? What does this mean? Well, I think in light of what we've been saying, I would say that that is shorthand for the wisdom of Christ. Christ, our wisdom, teaches us how to live differently. And that's how you learned. You learned to live differently by the wisdom of Christ. How awful we feel, then, when we veer from the wisdom of Christ and we walk according to the world's wisdom. It's a terrible feeling. There's one last detail that we need to address in this verse. Paul specifically says that these great treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. This is not an insignificant detail by any means. It's not there simply to emphasize the fact that wisdom's great treasures are in Christ. Now, I believe that Paul means by it that this unique and superior wisdom for living life the way it was really meant to be lived is found nowhere else but in Christ. It cannot be found anywhere else. It's exclusively Christ's wisdom. It's stored up in him alone. And if you want to know the joy and the wonder of this transforming wisdom, you need to look to Christ. Paul says, in essence, go to Christ and discover the treasures of his knowledge and wisdom that will transform you. Only Christ unlocks access to the stores of divine truth. And Paul calls, uh, what Paul calls in 1 Corinthians 2.10, the deep things of God. And those of us who have can say with him that God richly poured out on us all the wisdom and understanding, Ephesians 1.8. Well, there are several applications that I want to make for us as we wind up our time together. <clears throat> the first one is an appeal, really. An appeal from the Holy, Script, Holy Spirit to anyone who's not found his or her wisdom in living in Christ. Turn from all worldly wisdom for living and embrace God's wisdom in Christ, Paul says. Embrace his redeeming work on your behalf. The work that he did in order to pay the penalty for your sin and to reconcile reconcile you to God and enjoy a life that promises lasting gain. For this is the wisest course of action for anyone. Don't trust your own way or any otherworldly way for that matter, no matter what you hear over the airwaves, from the media, from some guru on the radio, 
or a podcast. No, we need to trust Christ and his word. Proverbs 12, 14 says, There is a way which seems right to a person, but in the end the way is death. Listen to 1 Corinthians 13, 8. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool so that he can become wise. Hmm. We have an expression in America. At least it was around when I was a kid. When a guy was madly in love with a woman, we'd say he is a fool for her. In other words, he doesn't care what she puts him through. He'd gladly endure it for her sake. Now, to be a fool for Christ, in 1 Corinthians 13.8, certainly is not devoid of this aspect of love for Christ. But it also calls a person to denounce any worldly wisdom for life and embrace instead the gospel, even if the world considers it foolishness. When you embrace the gospel, you receive a proper fear of God. Fear the Lord. That is the beginning of wisdom, the sage says. Fear of the Lord has to come first. The gospel calls a person to forsake all and to follow after the new love of his life. And that is Christ the Lord. And the ability to walk wisely comes out of that. Bruce Waltke, eminent Old Testament scholar, makes this point in many of his Old Testament, uh, his writing on Old Testament wisdom literature, when he says that a person could memorize the entire book of Proverbs and still lack wisdom if it didn't affect his heart. And heart informs behavior. Without being what Jesus calls born again, no one should ever expect to live a godly, wisely, a wise life, even if he should commit large sections of the Bible to memory and make an effort to live it out. It won't happen. There has to be a new birth. Jeremiah and Ezekiel both tell us that the word of God is written on the hearts of those who, who have entered into a covenant relationship with Christ. A member of Christ's new covenant loves God, loves his word. His word is in his heart. He craves it. He feeds on it. He knows it well. He has grasped its meaning intellectually and emotionally. And when he has completely internalized it, he is deliberate about applying its commands and principles to his own situation, and he will live wisely. For those of us who have embraced Christ, the wisdom of God for our salvation and enjoy an intimate relationship with him, there is something else for us here. God's wisdom keeps us from being deceived and from being unstable in our faith. That's what Colossians 2.3 has for us. God's wisdom keeps us from being deceived and from being unstable in our faith. Paul's concern in the immediate context of Colossians 2 is that we would, we would be kept from being deceived. And he mentions persuasive arguments in verse 4 that in verse 5 claim to nurture spiritual life. But in reality, they only make our lives chaotic and make us unstable in our faith. His final word on the matter is in verse 23 of that chapter where 
he tells us that, that these many fraudulent and secular doctrines only give the appearance of wisdom, but they have no value for us whatsoever. No value. His command, back in verse 7, is to walk in Christ according to the wise instruction of apostolic teaching. We find in the New Testament. He says the same thing in Ephesians 5. Be careful how you walk. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Are you careful to walk in Christ? Do you keep the lens of Scripture on all the time so that you can discern and know how to act wisely? So you can discern the difference between good and evil. Since Colossians 2.3 squares with the rest of the New Testament, we could say more. Let me give just a few more practical applications. This comes from the rest of the New Testament. God's wisdom is expressed in the gospel. It's expressed in the gospel. Paul says that those who are called to saving faith, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1.24 Christ is the power of God because Christ alone canceled the power of sin. And Christ is the wisdom of God alone because in Christ God gave Christians the mastery over sin. We know what to do with it. Be careful to proclaim the gospel then as as it is in the New Testament. If you add anything or you take anything away, you distort the wisdom of God's saving work. Also, I would say that biblical wisdom is the context of our ministry. Our church verse, if you look up in our website, if I can put it that way, our church verse, it's Colossians 1.28. It's plastered right on the first page of the website as you look at it. It says, We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. This verse, excuse me, this verse has to do with how we, how we approach the equipping of the saints. The goal is their maturity. And the approach is by skillfully coming alongside members with the scripture in hand, confronting their situations with biblical instruction on how they may please Christ in them. Local church leadership that, does, that doesn't practice that that wisdom, they really should repent and change or get out of the ministry. And this approach is not unique to leadership either, but each of the members as well, according to Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among them in this way, in all wisdom, or by skillful teaching and admonishing each other with all gratitude in your hearts. All of us, beloved, speak to each other, not in words taught by human wisdom. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.13, in those taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. By the wisdom we encounter, we encourage rather each other in our sanctification. How are you doing in your one anothering? I would also say that God's wisdom produces behavior that is unmistakably godly. James chapter 3, verses 14 to 16, says, If you have bitter envy, selfish ambition in your heart, 
Don't boast and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder in every, in every evil practice. Notice that James singles out behavior that is characteristic of wisdom that does not come from God. It's worldly. Actually, to be precise, James says it's demonic. James, in the same breath, then goes on to describe behavior that is characteristic of godly wisdom in verse 17. But the wisdom from above, what's first pure, and then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without pretense. Which of the two characterizes you? Finally, I would say this. Biblical wisdom is there for the asking. It's there for the asking, James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives it to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. <clears throat> James tells us to ask God for wisdom. Now remember I told you at the very beginning of our study that wisdom is not knowledge. Wisdom is the application of knowledge. Knowledge is the hammer, and wisdom is swinging the hammer. So here James tells us that we should ask God for wisdom. He is not telling us to ask God for knowledge. This is very important. So many Christians misunderstand this. They say, I, I don't know what God wants me to do, so I had better ask. And they go to prayer, and they're, they're praying and asking God for what God's will is in their life over and over again for quite a long time until they sense that they have discovered it. But plenty of, as though, even though plenty of Christians do this and it seems right to them, it's really an inaccurate practice. Why do I say that? Well, because we don't need to ask God for knowledge about his will for us because he's already given it to us in his word. It's all right there, everything, either in command form or in principle form in the scripture. God has nothing more to say to us than what he's already said to us in scripture, right? Just like the old hymn, How Firm a Foundation. How does it go? What more can he say than to you he has said? Nothing, nothing more. When Christians tell you that they don't know God's will for their particular situation, and they're praying that God would reveal it to them, they don't realize that he has already. They just need to go to the Bible to find it. They have the hammer, remember? It's there in plain sight. They just need to ask God how to use it with surgical precision. We ask God how to apply what he has already told us in his word. That's what James means. You may discover from scripture, for example, that God wants you to confront a longtime Christian friend who doesn't handle confrontation well. You cannot ignore it. That's not an option. But here we may ask God in prayer for how we might best carry this out. That's wisdom. And he'll give it freely. Beloved, if you're thankful for what God has given us in the Incarnation, the pure, unadulterated, absolute wisdom to live by. 
then you'll show it. You'll show it by embracing and living God's wisdom. It's not only for our sanctification, you know, that we are conformed more to the image of Christ by it. For sure we are. But there's something else. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 6 and 7 that God predestined this wisdom before the ages for our glory. Our Father, we are so grateful for your goodness to us by giving us this short and pithy verse from Colossians 2, yet so profound, filled with spiritual wisdom. And we pray, O God, that we would search your scriptures prayerfully and carefully, that we might know your will, your will for the ages and your will for our lives. We pray that the Holy Spirit will assist us as we come to understand the commands that are there for us and also the the scriptural truth that comes to us in principle form that we might apply it all to our lives in such a way that we look more like Christ day by day for your glory, for your honor, and for the benefit of your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.